My wife Tammy and I have different opinions when it comes to fish. I just love to visit an oceanside fish market, and as soon as I, I walk in, I inhale deeply of the salt air and look at the bounty of the sea. Ah, oh, isn't it wonderful? Smells fishy, she says, which means not great, as in awful. To me, smelling fishy is a good thing, but for Tammy, it's bad. We have a difference of opinion there. And the Bible is probably more on Tammy's side than mine. For when Exodus talks about the river smelling fishy, it isn't a compliment. Exodus 7 says, The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. But you know, there's another way that we use the term smells fishy that has nothing to do with rotting fish or with fish markets. We sometimes say that something smells fishy when someone's story doesn't seem right, when things don't add up, when we're suspicious, when we doubt what they're telling us is true. And perhaps this phrase comes from all of the, the stories that fishermen and women have told over the years. You know, a fisherman's catch is the only thing that can keep growing year after year after it has died. You know, that five-pound walleye in 10 years has grown to be 12 pounds. So we're suspicious of fish stories. And that same suspicion of fish stories can carry over to the Bible. We look at the stories there and we wonder, can God really do that? I don't know. You ever wonder if the stories in the Bible can be trusted? Well, let me assure you that unlike fishermen, God doesn't lie. We can trust his message. The theme verse for our, our sermon series this summer, looking at all the different animal stories in the Bible, is Job 12, verse 7. But ask the animals and they will teach you, the birds of the sky, and they will tell you. And it continues in verse 8. Or speak to the earth and it will teach you, or let the fish in the sea inform you. So today we're going to look at three different fish stories from the Bible to see what they can inform us about trusting in God and his word. And we're going to start out with a story about little fish. Fish so small, a boy might eat two of them for lunch and still have room left over for five buns. You know the story is the, the feeding of the 5,000. A huge crowd has gathered in a remote place to listen to Jesus. And Jesus asks his disciples, how are they going to feed all of these people way out where they're at? It seems impossible, of course, and Philip tells Jesus that. Here's a story from John chapter 6. Another of his disciples, Andrew Simon Peter, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. 
And when they'd all gathered and had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now here we have a typical fisherman story. Those little fish just kept growing and growing until it was enough to, to feed 5,000. Although if you were Tammy, you would say those two would have been enough. I mean, who wants to eat those smelly fish? But even the bread was multiplied enough so that there's 12 baskets left over. So can God take small gifts and turn them into something big? Well, just try it and see for yourself. I mentioned before how when I was a student, I worked as a, uh, an intern chaplain at Murdoch Center, which was a huge state-run facility for mentally challenged adults down in North Carolina. And this was back in what they might call the warehousing days, where people were, uh, were housed in huge facilities. So you had all of these residents who at best had a six-year-old men six mental capacity. But they had faith. At least, uh, at least several hundred of them. One of my responsibilities was to help lead worship and sometimes even to preach in their gorgeous chapel building. It was about the size of this sanctuary, maybe a little larger, but it didn't have pews, it didn't have chairs like this. It had wooden pews. And the wooden pews had a slit down the center of it in case any of the residents had an accident. It wouldn't run down the pew. It would just drop onto the floor, and the floor didn't have carpet. It had a hard surface, so we chaplains could easily mop it up afterwards. And in addition to the cross at the front of the church, they had a great big neon light rainbow that went across. And that rainbow was there because the residents asked for it. They loved the bright colors. They loved the story of Noah. You see, this church existed solely for and because of these residents. Remember, this was a state-run facility, and state-run facilities aren't known for putting up churches. But the residents wanted a church like other people had. The chaplain had told them it was impossible. Even if they could get permission to build a church like that, there was no money to do that. Well, some of these residents didn't take no for an answer. Some of them worked in a sheltered workshop where they made a few pennies an hour, and they started saving those pennies and nickels and dimes. And one day they, they went to the chaplain and they said, here, now we can have our church. Well, the chaplain didn't know what to do uh, except to pray. God, what do you want me to do with this? And then he started sharing the story with other people. And the money started coming in. And they built that beautiful church, the first of its kind in the country. It's amazing what God can do when small gifts are offered. God can multiply them 
just like with those small fish. You try it. See what God can do in your life. When you give him even small things, God can work miracles with the, even the littlest things given in faith. A little of your time, a little of your talents, a little of your love, a few of your coins or, or two of your fish. God can take a small thing and turn it into something big. Trust him. And speaking of something big, let's go on to our second story. Because it's a story about bigger fish. In fact, 153 large fish, to be exact. Leave it to fishermen to remember the exact number of fish that they caught. When I was uh, about six years old, I was fishing with my grandpa in Wisconsin, and I caught my first big fish. You know, as a, as a little kid, usually catch those like, three-inch uh, sunnies, right? Well, I caught a four-pound, 12-ounce northern pike. And that may not seem big to you, but that was almost as big as I was. And I was thrilled. And I remember its weight exactly because it was such a momentous event in my life. It wasn't just catching the big fish. It was that I finally became a fisherman like my grandpa. Now the disciples, they remember too the day when they caught 153 large fish. And not just because of the size of the fish or the size of the catch, but because it was another day that was so momentous in their lives because it was a day that they met the risen Jesus. Here's what that old fisherman John remembered. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord! And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off. He jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards off. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Now that story might sound fishy to you. I mean, a miraculous catch of fish and all big ones. But the part of the story that's most doubted is not the fish, but the fact that Jesus was there at all. Remember, Jesus had done a, a big fish miracle like this before when he first called the disciples. Remember, it was the same thing. So what makes this story so fishy to people is not so much the miracle, but the fact that Jesus is there doing it because this is after Jesus was crucified. This is after Jesus was buried in that tomb. It's after Easter morning when he walked out of the grave a living, breathing, resurrected, physical body. And people have been doubting that ever since it happened. The authorities doubted it then, Thomas doubted. Even when 
Jesus is standing right in front of people. They doubted it. Matthew 28 reports that then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. He's standing right in front of them, and some doubted. The resurrection is one of the best attested to most momentous events in ancient history. All of human history since then has been shaped by the story of the risen Jesus. So why do you think people think it smells fishy? Perhaps it's because it's too good to be true. And that's why Jesus does these, the miracle of the 153 large fish or any of the other things that he does after his resurrection to show them, it's really me. I really am alive. Remember? I'm the one who gives the great catch of fish. Luke reports that even, uh, even on Easter Day, when he appears to the disciples and they see his hands and his feet, they still can't believe it. So Jesus takes a piece of fish and he eats it in front of them. He says, even after they've seen his hands and feet, and while they still did not believe it because of the joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to hear, here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. The resurrection Jesus is no fish story. And whether it's catching 153 large fish or eating a small bite of fish, Jesus goes out of his way to show that the resurrection is real. To show that, that it's true, that he is alive. As true as that four-pound, 12-ounce northern that I caught. Jesus is risen. And because Jesus lives, we can live too. In fact, the night before going to the cross, he made this promise. He said, because I live, you will live also. We too can experience the resurrection of the, of the body. Romans 8 promises, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also because of his spirit which lives in you will give life to your mortal bodies also because of his spirit which lives in you. This is not a fish story. This is a promise. Jesus is risen and we can live because he lives. All right, so for our third story, we're going to go even bigger. And as you can probably guess, it's the story of Jonah. Often we call it the story of Jonah and the whale. It's too long to read here, and so let's just do a quick review. God wants Jonah to go to the notoriously sinful Nineveh and tell the people there to shape up or they'll be destroyed. Jonah doesn't want to go there. He doesn't care if they live or die. And he certainly doesn't want to risk his own life, so he hops the ship and he sails off in the opposite direction. A terrible storm comes up, the sailors blame Jonah, Jonah says, yeah, you're right, I'm running away from God, it's all my fault, just throw me overboard. They throw him overboard, and that's where the fish comes in. 
Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Notice it doesn't say he was swallowed by a whale. I mean, we think of a whale because they're big and fish-like. And there have been documented cases of people who actually have been swallowed by whales and then lived. But the Hebrew word here in the Bible is just the generic fish. It doesn't say what kind of fish it is because that's not the point. We fixate on the fish part, but that's really not the point of the story. That's just the, the bus ride that, that Jonah takes to get to shore. That's just the, the transportation device so God can put Jonah where God needs him, which is back on land with another chance to do what's right and go save the Ninevites. Well, Jonah does follow God with this second chance, and he preaches to the Ninevites, and much to his dismay, they repent and are saved. They change their way, the city is saved, and Jonah is ticked. He didn't want them to be saved. <clears throat> and if God wanted them saved so badly, why didn't God just do it himself? Why did he have to involve Jonah? Well, you ever thought like that? You ever wish God would, would just smite people? You know, those, those people that, that you see in the news, you just go, why? Why doesn't God just zap them? Or maybe it's your neighbor. God, can't you do a little smiting over here? A pastor friend of mine had one of the earliest uh, smartphones. He was an early adopter kind of guy. And things were pretty primitive back that time, even for a smartphone. So he had this game on it. And as far as I could tell, the only point of the game was to act like God and smite people. So you had the button to press, and then this lightning bolt would come from on high and zap people. And that was the whole, the whole thrill of the game, was just to, to smite people. You know, and sometimes we wish that, that there was a smite button and that God would press it and smite some of those people that make us so angry. Jonah wanted God to hit the smite button. Instead, God saved the city. And so Jonah, he just sits and pouts. And God teaches him a little lesson with, with a plant and a worm. And then the story ends this way. The Lord says to Jonah, You've been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not have been concerned for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left? and also many animals. The story of Jonah is not really a story about a whale or a big fish. It's a story about how badly God wants to save people. Even so, a story of someone being swallowed by a fish may smell fishy. 
But you know, it's really no more difficult for God to do that, to raise up a fish or a whale or whatever, than it is to raise someone from the dead. And in fact, Jesus says that the story of Jonah is actually about him. It's actually a sign of what he will do to save people. In Matthew 12, Jesus tells the people, looking for some kind of evidence of, of who Jesus is, and he says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. We focus on the fish but the real story is about God forgiving and saving the Ninevites. The real story is about God forgiving and saving us through what Jesus does when he spends three days in the tomb to save you and me. You know, sometimes we don't know our right hand from our, our left. Our right hand from our left. And sometimes we're like Jonah. We run away from God or we want God to, to send destruction rather than forgiving people. But God's desire is not to destroy. God's desire is to save. And without a doubt, we can trust God to save us and forgive us when we repent. Jonah, the 153 large fish, the, the feeding of the 5,000, these are all stories about fish, but they aren't fish stories. They aren't the exaggerations of, of fishermen or, or the fantasies of ancient authors. They're God's message to us. A message of love and salvation. A message saying, trust me. Trust me. So will you? Let's pray. God, sometimes we, we look at your word and we wonder, man, it seems too good to be true. But you've shown us over and over again the extent you will go to save us, to rescue us, even from ourselves, and even going to the cross so that we can live. That's a bigger miracle than than 153 large fish in a net or, or two fish feeding 5,000. The biggest miracle of all is your resurrection. And it's the greatest gift of all. So thank you, Jesus, for saving us. Thank you that we can trust in your word. Amen.